Welcome to another Neat Humans podcast, and this episode may not have quite as much universal appeal as some of the others do, but for folks who have similar interests as myself, I think you might find it pretty interesting. Uh, Today we're talking to Eric Newhouse, Um, maybe not quite a famous name, but somebody who uh, for a while had definitely his moment in the sun on national television. Um, Eric is a former Jeopardy champion and one of the early Jeopardy champions that um, got a lot of fame in the late 80s and mid to late 90s and um, back then I mean he he was you know for a long time he was considered one of the goats before you know folks like Brad Rutter and Ken Jennings came around and um, he was a guy that was from Sioux City Iowa originally Um, I first got to know him because uh, during 2020 during the lockdown they were um, re-airing some of the old tournaments from you know long decades ago when they aired a uh, what was called the Million Dollar Masters which was um, I think took place about 15 years or uh, maybe a little bit after that. It was in the early 2000s. They held this tournament of some of the best champions from the first you know, 15 to 18 years of Jeopardy. Um, and he was on it um, because he had previously, previously won the uh, teen tournament along with another tournament. Um, and so they, uh, they brought him on and uh, he ended up finishing in second place to Brad Rutter, who um, is considered to be one of, if not uh, possibly one of the best players of all time. Um, and so uh, Eric finished second to him and so certainly was in lofty company. But anyway, they re-aired his episodes and I found out that he was from the area. And so um, I looked him up on Facebook and he had a uh, mutual friend that worked at the same TV station as myself. And so I reached out to uh, that particular gentleman, Matt Rixner, and uh, he got me in touch with Eric. And uh, we, we initially did an interview um, about a year and a half ago, right after Alex Trebek died. Um, we did something for uh, KMEG, the station I was working for at the time, um, just uh, kind of talking about his memories of Alex and what he knew about it. But but I knew he had some interesting stories to tell, and so I thought he'd be a great subject for this, both because he um, has a very long and interesting history history with Jeopardy throughout um, you know three different decades. He's somebody who um, has a lot of unique interests. I mean, we had a lot of really interesting conversation during this uh, this recording. Um, spanning from Jeopardy to his current job, which is kind of something unique that I've never met anybody else who works in this field before. Um, we talked about sports and, and cinema and foreign film and um, curling. He's, he's really passionate about curling as well. And so we had a lot of uh, just interesting conversations about different things here and there. I don't know how much I'll stay in. Some I might have to cut for time, but um, whatever is in there, I hope you enjoy it. So here's Eric Newhouse. Well, appreciate you letting me uh, call in tonight again. Oh, not at all. Um, I don't know how much you still uh, even get a chance to relive all, all your Jeopardy days, but uh, I always enjoy getting a chance to hear about some of those uh, glory days for you. Um, so first, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm going to ask a lot of the same questions probably that I asked last time that I had you on for uh, K-Meg, but um, I always found it interesting, the story about how you actually got on in the first place, because it sounds like your audition process and everything was a little bit different than what they do now. Well, you know, in in the before times, before we had an internet, so to speak, uh, (laughs) when they were first getting the show off the ground, because they they, uh, revamped the show, so to speak, or premiered it in 1984. And so early on, what they would do is they would have contestant searches in five or six locations around the country. So what you would do would be to send in a postcard, which for those of you under 30 is like a, a letter without an envelope. Uh, or a analog email. Yeah. They would send X of them in. They would draw a wide number of those postcards, and those people that they drew, they would invite to one of these contestant searches around the country. And when you say a postcard, do you? I mean, is it just you know a a, a wish you were here from Sioux City or something? Well, I, I'm not even sure if they still if they still have them, but you used to be able to get, go to the post office, the post office, and you would get blank postcards. Huh. Uh, and they would. I think the only thing anybody ever used them for was for just these sort of things. You know, you'd put your name and address on them. You would dash them in the mail. They cost about maybe half as much as an actual letter. Um, you know, but they were cheaper than sending a letter. So you would send, you know, just send a stack of them out. Okay. And be five or six of them and, and dash those out. Cause I, I ran into later people who had sent, you know, a couple dozen, even as much as a couple hundred and had never gotten the call. So, some months later, they sent me a letter inviting me to a contestant search, and I think it was Memphis, Philly, uh, Los Angeles, um, 
Dallas or Houston and Omaha. So conveniently enough, mm-hmm. you know, you drive down to Omaha, it's maybe an hour and change, and they have a live convention search, which I think they may still do. Hmm. I know they've, they've moved most of that online, certainly now, but I know they were still doing, I know they did a live contestant search in Omaha within the past within the past half dozen years. So I think they still do occasionally, at least pre-COVID, did those around the country. And what was it, I mean, the interesting thing about the postcard deal is, yeah, that like, you know, now you take the online test. That's the first thing you do. Um, but with the postcards, there's no online test. I mean, how, how do they know or have an idea of who is actually smart or qualified to be on the show back then? Well, you know, they get X of you in the, uh, uh, you know, in the room. I think they, they did it at one of the major hotels around town. I couldn't tell you which one. But they just picked a random, um, as far as I know, at least. You know, I, I don't think they had any way of knowing who any of us are mm-hmm. or who any of us were before we got in the room. So you would you would go in there and there would be maybe 60, 80, 100 of you in the room and they give you the test, which is handwritten, which is manual, uh, which means they give you a piece of paper with 100 questions on it and put up a video screen with Alex reading every clue. And you've got X amount of time to write down the answer to every, or the, you know, the question, every answer. You don't need to phrase them in the form of a question at that point. Mm-hmm. So they give you a hundred question test. They grade it very quickly. Uh, Cause I think within maybe within the half hour, they came out and pulled out maybe a 10th of us, probably no more than a dozen with the highest scores. Hmm. Uh, they do not tell you what you need to get to pass. They do not tell you what your score was. They just pulled, you know, 12 or 15 of you out and put you through a mock game which is basically you playing the game with other people to see, you know, are you good TV? You know, do you, you know, do you know how to play the game? Can you, are you not going to vapor lock on, on TV? That sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And you, and you, you, of course, your initial appearance was on the teen tournament. So how old would you have been when all that went down? Well, uh, I think when they did the original search, it would have been in, in 1988. So I would have been, I would have been not yet, uh, not yet 16. Wow. When I when I first was on was February of 1989, which was a little bit before I turned 16. Okay, and that's that's what surprised me too. I mean, what what made you at that time think? I mean, especially as a teenager, think I am smart enough to be on Jeopardy. What gave you that idea? I mean, had had you been the smartest kid in class go, growing up? Yeah, I, I sort of had a background as I was I was one of those you know 70s gifted kids who basically I think I spent a good half of sixth grade just sitting in the library playing Oregon Trail because they'd run out of things for me to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was that kind of kid. And, you know, and, and so Jeopardy came on in, in the in the mid-80s and whatnot. And, you know, I would I grew up watching that and Joker's Wild and all that sort of thing. And I just watched it and I thought, you know, I can beat most of these people. <laughs> so you were pretty confident in your abilities. Even from the get-go, you knew that you ha- would have a good chance. You know, I'm faster than they are. I know more than they are. Especially, that goes double for the kids. Mm-hmm. Because... They had just done, they'd done the first team tournament in, I think, 1987. And, you know, they were fine. But, you know, I think the questions were maybe a little bit easier. So I thought, you know, fine, I'll do that. No problem. Yeah. I don't think they would actually let you on the ordinary show if you weren't 18. So I thought, you know, fine, I'll do this. Was that, I mean, was your house of Jeopardy watching household growing up? Did your whole family enjoy it? Or was that something that it was more kind of up your alley? No, it was, it was sort of a family thing. Um, well, it's, I think everybody was into it. I think my... You know, my parents were familiar with the uh, with the original version that ran during you know the ran in the seventies. Um, I had never seen that version. Um, you know, it's, it was some occasionally. You know, I, I had the sort of family that grew up playing Trail Pursuit and arguing for several days <laughs> over whether the Black Death and the Bubonic Plague were the same thing. <laughs> Wait, are they the same thing? Well, the card said Bubonic Plague. Okay, so it was basically the card says Mopes about a decade before it actually happened. Hmm. Oh, yeah, we did that. Okay. <laughs> um, how did people, I mean, right now, I, I don't know if Jeopardy was as much of a cultural touchstone back then. I feel like right now it's gotten to be so big that everybody knows all about Jeopardy. Was it the case back then? I mean, with, at high school at Sioux City East, I mean, were people excited for you, or was it a big deal to be going on the show back then? I think kind of. I mean, in, in the context of its time, because, you know, the, the original Art Fleming version had run, I think, during the 60s and 70s had gone off the air in, I want to say, 1979. And, you know, if if you want to give somebody credit for jump-starting Jeopardy again, 
uh, is Weird Al Yankovic, of all people. <laughs> in 78, 79, Greg Kim had that song, Jeopardy. Uh, it was, you know, an MTV hit, and then Weird Al parodied it in 83. Um, and I think that was, you know, and I, I read some of that was actually a contributing factor to their decision to, to reboot the show in 1984, the following year. Wow, I, I guess I didn't realize it. I know I've heard that Weird Al song. I don't think I realized that that came out before Trebek and Jeopardy came back into syndication. Oh yeah, it was a, I mean the original song dates from '79. I think the the because it was on the, it was on the album with Beat It, which came out in '82 or '83. Uh, they rebooted the show in '84, mm-hmm. so it definitely predates it. I don't know if it was in development yet, but I don't think it was because I think I think at that time Trebek was he was either doing High Rollers on on NBC. Or he might have been doing even Pitfall, mm-hmm. which was the game show he would not talk about. It was a Canadian game show with a really funky 70s slash 80s set. You, know, you, can, you can look it up. It's still on YouTube. You can, you can see it still. And, you know, it had like flashing lights, elevators, the whole bit. Um, and he did some episodes of that, and they stiffed him. They never paid him. Hmm, really? So that was kind of a sore spot for him for a while. <laughs> well, Jeopardy certainly made up for it. Um... And then he got gig and you know there we away we went you know yeah yeah when you went on the show was it um when you got on there was it easier or harder than you thought i mean did you ex- it, uh, excel as well as you thought you did i mean you thought when you you said that when you watched the teen tournaments that you thought the questions were a lot easier so did you do as well as you kind of figured you would yeah for the most part yeah i thought so <laughs> um, but when you got up on the stage, I mean, was there anything that surprised you or that was more of a challenge than initially you have, would have thought? No, not so much. I mean, because I think we, you know, we take five shows in one day, as they still do today. So it was a two-week tournament, so you were actually in studio for two days. And the first week, everybody gets a game, so there are 15 of you, and I think an alternate. And you just sit in the green room until they pull you out one at a time, or three at a time, I guess. You know, you never know when you're going to go on. You know, you don't know who you're going to be with. So I think I went on for the first time on Thursday. So we spent, you know, all morning in the green room, you know, drinking coffee and watching. I think it was Adventures in Babysitting. And then finally it's Thursday and here we are. And I'm in the studio that is a lot brighter than I expected it to be and a lot uh, quieter than I expected it to be because it's only about, you know, 250, maybe 300 people. Because at this time they were still doing it at the old, at the old KTLA studios in Van Nuys. And so they would take Jeopardy there, and then they would take us to lunch between third and fourth games. Um, and to get there, you, you had crab services set up on the set of Soul Train. <laughs> they would take you through the set of American Gladiators. And that was lunch. That must have been a dream, too, to be able to see all that. I mean, for a kid from Sioux City to go out there and to be able to kind of experience a little bit of a small taste of Hollywood must have been cool, too. Yeah, I'd never, I'd never been out there before, so it was, you know, it was, it was actually, I think it was the first time I'd ever had it be like 60, 70 degrees in January, mm-hmm. because we taped it right after the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. and as soon as we landed after taping it, I think we got, we landed in about maybe four or five inches of snow. Wow. Ongoing storm. I, I hear about people that turn into big champions on present-day Jeopardy, and they talk about their studying or preparation process did you did you put any preparation in or study extra studying in or was it all kind of natural ability that uh, that got you through your initial run you know i didn't really do anything because you know nobody had nobody was doing that yet uh, i mean there have been books that have come out about you know what to study for how to handle the buzzer but i think the first one of those i don't think came out till the maybe the early 90s so none of this was a thing yet you know you would watch this by you know we had like a couple of years worth of epic champions of our own, you know, Chuck Forrest, Bob Barini, Leslie Freitas, what have you. So, I mean, we know, we knew how to do this, but you know, they could only go five games and that was it. And initially, obviously we first connected because, uh, uh, it was right after Alex died that, uh, that we had a chance to speak. Um, and I think if I remember right from that conversation, it sounded like you, um, I don't know, of your multiple appearances on the show, you didn't ever get, you didn't feel like you had like a super duper close relationship with Alex. Is that right to say? Well, I mean, you, you see him, you see him, you know, I mean, you don't really have a lot of time with him because, you know, it's, it's just work. He shows up at the beginning of the day to, you know, pump, uh, pump everybody up. He goes and changes, he, you know, you see him when you're taping and that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you never got to know him at, at all, you know, off camera or got any, any sort of interactions with him? Not so much. I mean, I, I would run into him and, you know, when, when we taped the, uh, 
the Billion Dollar Master Tournament at Radio City, we had a you know a nice shindig afterward. You know him, him and Mrs. Trebek and Mr. And Mrs. Gilbert. You know we met all of them. <laughs> They're all people. Yeah, I saw a lot more of the other people that were, you know, that were running around on stage. You know, the contestant coordinators, the uh, stage manager, the, the assistant producers. You see a lot more of them. Some of them I think are still here to this day. Mm, interesting. Uh, and I'm trying to remember now. Of course, I'd seen your appearance on the teen tournament and the million dollar masters but you'd been on what was it one or two other tournaments along the way as well well let's see i won the teen tournament in 89 so i played in the tournament champions that year okay and then we did a a reunion tournament for the first three teen tournaments in 1998 in boston uh and then i was briefly involved in the ultimate tournament champions in 2005 uh, but then maybe the weirdest one was after after we had done uh, the tournament champions in '89, the next year uh, there had been a contestant called Frank Spangenberg, um, who was a six foot seven transit cop from uh, from Queens with a big handlebar mustache. Big mustache, yeah. Would won about one hundred and five thousand across five games, which you know, was the which was the best anybody had done so far. And at the same time, um, Merv Griffin and ABC were trying to launch a game show based on Monopoly, which went about as well as you might expect. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I vaguely remember seeing it. You know, there was there was a board. There were three contestants. They'd move around the board. I don't know how, how that all was supposed to work. But they wanted a good lead-in for the show. So I think Merv had the idea, or somebody had the idea, to do like a big Jeopardy tournament during the summer of 1990. So they got, I think they got together 27 of the, you know, biggest contestants and champions they had up to that date um and that was your pool and slightly before that um frank had been on during i think season season six of the show which would have been you know 1989-90 and merv insisted that frank be you know he wanted frank to be a part of the show too because he was you know the new hotness as far as jeopardy champions went so they expanded the field from 27 to 36 and if you still see video of that game um Number one, you'll see me with a huge mullet um, <laughs> because 1990 and I'm 17. <laughs> uh, also, the fun part was instead of three podiums, you had four. Hmm. So your first games had four people playing at once. And one of those people, whoever won that game would advance. So I ended up playing with, I think, the very first five-time champion. It was a lady named Elise Bararu from the first from the first season. An opera singer named Gary Giardina. A reporter from the New York Times called Richard Paris Peggy, who, as far as I know, is still there. You still see his byline occasionally. And there's me on the far end. Um, and I won, and I went on to play uh, Bob Verini for the first time in the semifinal later that summer. Mm-hmm. And am I right to think, was Bob, was he who you ran into at the Million Dollar Masters as well? Right. Yeah, we, we, we ended up playing again in the final. And I think at that time, that was the first time we had gone like, 12 years or whatever between games and I think that was I think that was some sort of record I'm not sure if anybody had actually ever done that before yeah yeah um going back to again your initial appearance on and winning the the team tournament um you know again was there any sort of special welcome back home I feel like again now if it was like a Morningside student or a kid from Sioux City who won that that'd be a huge deal back in Sioux City but was was there anything big made for you when you returned home well, the school made a big deal about it. There were a couple of assemblies, uh, I think, because it was running on. It was running on Channel Four at the time. It was running on KTIV, mm-hmm. and I think they did. They sent cameras around to a couple of the uh, to a couple of the ticks. I think I organized parties at a couple of other houses where everybody could see the tapings as they happened. So they sent cameras for they sent cameras to a couple of those. I think at some point, Inside Edition came to talk to me, and I think I think it actually might have been Bill O'Reilly. Really. I, that video this this would have been this would have been like 1990 i think it would have been part of super jeopardy inside edition sent a, they sent a camera crew to sioux city to talk to me and i think it might actually have been it might have been bill o'reilly i'm not i'm not i don't remember very well huh i'd have to look that up too i'm kind of curious now to see if that was him um from from that first time that you appeared on i mean as you mentioned the 90s were a pretty big boom decade i think for jeopardy as far as people coming out with books and um just the emergence of popularity in the show uh, as you started to, again, make more appearances on, did you, again, adjust your study habits at all or try to do anything to stay kind of in mental shape? Or did you just trust, like, that you had enough natural intelligence that you'd be able to kind of keep up with people as you went back on? 
Well, a little bit. I mean, at this time, you, you had a pretty good idea of what kind of categories were likely to pop up. And I think, you know, I had established it. I'm not sure if, if this had become, you know, popular, properly done yet. But, you know, I didn't look at it as a game of recall. I looked at it as a game of a game of comprehension and application. You know, they you can't have three people just sitting there, you know, flapping their tongues for half an hour. That's bad TV. So you, you drop little clues in the in the the answers so if you're not entirely sure of the question you know there's something you might latch on to and associate and get it anyway so given that i think you know i just you know try to accumulate as much of the base stuff that's going to pop up you know presidents first ladies oscars sports what have you and just concentrate on getting in there first and it's not necessarily so much you know and you hear so much about the buzzer these days but it's not so much a contest of speed you know, you've got an actual human being over there activating the board. They will turn the board on. Alex will finish his question. They will turn the board on. A light will go on around the perimeter of the board, which used to be a lot more visible than it is now. Um, because, you know, on the 80s, it was like a big neon border that you could see reflecting off the podiums on the other side of the studio. Uh, and as soon as that light was on, you could you could jump in. And if you were a little bit ahead of that light, it would lock you out for a fraction of a second. So it's... So it, really good at it sometimes you know if you've built in just the right amount of delay that light would barely like flicker on and you'd be in yeah yeah that's what i've heard people say is that it's timing and speed are different things you kind of have to get into the uh, rhythm of figuring out yeah exactly when that light is going to come on um did uh did you ever make any sort of or was there ever a time where you kind of decided that it was you know maybe an unofficial or unofficial retirement from jeopardy or you know if you still got a call today would you uh would you say hey yeah let's let's go try it out again well i figured if they were going to call me they would have because the last time i was on was in actually 2005 uh which is interesting because i think that was i think that was actually the day that pope benedict was invested uh that's how long ago it was <laughs> And occasionally I run into people that, that are actually pissed because they never seem to have invited me back for any of the other stuff. I know that um, they, they did something, I think it was a tournament of the decades in 2013. They contested from the 80s, from the 90s. And I think they called me about that uh, because I remember, getting a, I remember getting a call from some intern in Culver City wondering, you know, why I hadn't been in touch. But, you know, I was studying for the bar, so I was kind of busy. <laughs> Yeah. And he didn't follow up, but he never did, so I don't know what happened there. Yeah, so that might have been the last chance. Interesting. How much is Jeopardy, or Jeopardy still a part of your life? Do you watch, you know, on a daily, weekly, monthly, or not at all? Every once in a while, you know, I have to admit, I was following it a bit more closely during the during the guest host, uh, guest host-arama, because huh. that was interesting. Uh, I caught, you know, I caught a little bit of Matt, because I was interested in him. Mm -hmm. I caught a little bit of Amy Schneider, because I was interested in her. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't see it every day, but I've seen, I think it's interesting that you've had like a, uh, almost a procession of like high octane champions in the last year or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been amazing, honestly, the amount of champions we've had. But I, I am kind of curious now that you say that you were watching for the hosts. Uh, what did you think of the whole guest host drama? Who were, who were, who was good? Who didn't you like very much? Who do you think should have gotten the job? Well, let's see. I thought, I thought Ken was fine, but a bit bland. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess he did seem like a natural choice, so I guess I'm not surprised that he's back doing it again. Mm -hmm. and that he's kind of like, you know, I can see them just sort of, you know, letting everything blow over and, and you know, keep keep things as they are. Uh, I can't comment on Mike Richards. I never saw him. Mm -hmm. uh, I never saw what anybody saw on Aaron Rodgers, because mm -hmm. I, caught, I caught him during his first week, and he just struck me as kind of blasé. Right. Very, very deadpan. I mean, he's not he's not a very excitable guy. Yeah, didn't do it for me. Uh, like like Bialik, like, and here's why. Uh, I caught her during her first week, and what I thought was was off about some of the guest hosts, I think maybe Ken less than others, is, you know, you're listening to them, and, you know, when, when I watch the show, I, I, I listen to it in terms of, you know, I sort of listen, half listen and half play, you know, which is why I don't watch it all, which is why I don't watch it all the time, because it's kind of like work, you know. So... You listen for the question, you listen for the clue, you wait for the clue to end, and you know that's when you reflexively jump in. Mm -hmm. And if you know Alex's cadence well enough, you know pretty much how this is going to go as soon as you read the clue. You know what it's going to sound like. You know where he's going to pause. You know when he's going to end. And some of the hosts matched this cadence and some did not. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, he threw me off a bit because he didn't. Mm -hmm. But what really impressed me initially about Maya was because she pretty much had that same cadence. Interesting. 
she was she if you weren't paying careful attention she sounded enough like alex you know she had she had a similar enough cadence so that she sounded right you know hmm. she didn't sound she didn't sound so much like a different host and then you know she had her own personality on top of that and you know, i yeah. thought that worked out very well yeah yeah i thought they did good i i'd be curious what your thoughts are on these ones because they were some of the ones that i thought really did well were um i thought sanjay gupta was did a really good job it was excellent i thought he was terrific yeah. He was maybe a little bit low-key, but I thought he was a great host. Yeah, I thought he was maybe one of the best ones that they brought in. I I mean, people that already work in TV almost already, like it's a cheat, like they have kind of a leg up. Because I thought like Dr. Oz, I thought, did a good job. I thought like Jack or uh, Joe Buck did a good job just because like they're, they've been on camera and talked to people so regularly that they kind of already know what they're doing on the job. Yeah, either you love Joe Buck or you hate him, but, you know, he knows how to direct traffic on TV, so he's going to be a good host, and I thought he was. I thought he was terrific. Yeah. I thought David Favor, the CNBC guy, I had mm. never heard of before. I thought he was terrific. And then, of course, you know, they had they had Mike Richards blow up in their face, <laughs> but then, you know, they had maybe the best gift you could ever ask for was, you know, here's Matt Amodio, like, legendary champion, you know, finally making it about the contestants again rather than about the host, you know, so... I, he he graded on me a little bit at first, but then I, I realized you know what he was up to. Is he's a, he's a computer science PhD, mm-hmm. so he's not going to spend any more time on the inessential stuff than he has to. So he's just you know getting it done. Yeah, the whole the whole what's anybody who kind of uh, brings a new wrinkle to the game in a way um, I always have a little bit of respect for, and he definitely did that with the the what's um, and never saying what is or who is or whatever, and that that really struck me as I mean kind of a fun little revolutionary thing that he tried out. Um, I, yeah, I was kind of curious to get your take on, yeah, those two recent champions, both Matt and Amy, and what your thoughts are on their game and uh, kind of how they play and what you've seen in them. I, I've only seen Amy a couple of times. Um, I think it's, it's. I love that she's like the, I, probably the first, probably the first uh, major league trans champion we've ever seen, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, I heard her compared to a social worker in that she, you know, uh, attacks the board finds you know finds her problems solves them and, and moves on mm-hmm. um and the fun thing is at some point they're gonna have another tournament of champions and both matt and amy are gonna be in it mm-hmm. so a you'll get to see them play each other which ought to be interesting yeah and B, some poor sod is probably gonna end up there on stage with both of them <laughs> and who knows maybe they'll beat them i <laughs> I mean, you just never know what'll happen. Do you keep in touch with anybody from any of your runs on the show or, or any contact with other Jeopardy people that you've met? Not intimately. I know we had a we had a listserv going on the on the the New York City tournament for a couple of years, but that was, you know, before social media. And I, I see some of them I think primarily via Twitter. Uh, I don't remember the last time I actually saw any of them. Really? Um, what's your take on, I mean, now, as both on Matt and Amy's runs, I've seen people come out and say that they don't think that, you know, they, sh- that they should go back to the five-game max rule. Uh, Tom Nickel, I think, is the one that's written a couple articles about that. Any, any thoughts on that? Do you like that they can go for an uh, unlimited amount of time, or do you wish they had kind of a cap? Well, I mean, if he wasn't complaining about Holzhauer doing it, why is he complaining about Amy doing it? <laughs> It is what it is. You play any game for 40 years, people are going to try and break it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think they I think they knew what they were getting into when they started, you know, making five-plus day champions. You know, they, I, I don't know whether they wanted to harken back to the, you know, the grand old days of uh, 21 or whatever. But, you know, if you want to make it about the contestants, that's one way of doing it. Um, I mean, yeah, you do get a bit of an advantage when, when you're playing for that long. But also from a champion's perspective, you know, that's, that's got to just get harder and harder every time. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, everybody's, everybody's intimidated by you, but, you know, you've, you know, you got a rep to protect. Mm-hmm. You know, you have, to, you have to win or people will wonder why you don't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, re- I remember at least a couple times seeing that during James's run, not necessarily from Tom, but other people saying that, you know, he, he had broken the game and it wasn't fun to watch anymore because he, you know, would wager so much that it wasn't fun anymore. And so there's... I feel like anytime you have a champion that goes past like 15 days, then people are going to start writing articles about, you know, they're going to kind of turn into the villain or the people that, you know, they're the team that, the team or the person that everybody wants to root against. Um, I think that was the hard thing with Matt, too, is that like Matt is maybe the like nicest person that's ever been on Jeopardy. He seemed like just the sweetest little guy that just always had a smile on his face and it was hard to root against him. 
Yeah, but I mean, you, I mean, you you reduced it to that to that very thin margin, mm-hmm. and you know that's where the action is. So I don't, you know, I don't really know where you go from there. That's that's what that's what the game is now. Sure. Um, any thoughts on uh, the the goat too? I mean, as far as what you've watched, they had the goat tournament, of course, with Ken James and Brad, um, and they've had a couple of great champions since then. Any thoughts on who who you would dub as being, you know, the best player that you've watched? Oh, I can't imagine. Well. I don't know because I think I think all the people I played with, you know, you can't help but wonder how they would have done in such a in such a scenario. You know, I think one of the one of the most gratifying things I heard um, when when they ran the New York tournament uh, a couple of years ago was, oh my god, it used to be the show used to be so much harder than it is now. Hmm. But I think it's gratifying that somebody thinks that. Uh, <laughs> maybe you have more popular culture questions, stuff like that. So I mean, I don't know. It's like. It's like uh, it's like asking what your favorite movie is. I mean, it's it's like comparing the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is like three hours of epic uh, epic western to like a you know eighty minute uh, eighty minute drama. They're not quite the same thing. And, you know, on, on any given day, one is going to be the best thing you're going to see, and one is not. You know, it's like it's it's context dependent. You know. James is a guy that I really do think, though, that deserves a lot of respect for. Like, I mean, he really did seem to uh, kind of turn the game on its head or, you know, really revolutionize things in a way that people had not been doing before as far as his wagering amount and, you know, uh, the way that he kind of tackled the board. You just didn't see that very often before. Yeah, I don't think everybody, anybody had ever really applied those principles to the game before. In the end, I thought it was kind of gratifying that the oldest player won. <laughs> is Ken older than Brad? Uh, yeah, Ken, I think Ken was, let me see, Ken was 45, Brad was 41. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Ken, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a sucker for any sort of tournament too, so if they were to bring back another GOAT tournament of some kind or another tournament of champions that's, you know, goes throughout the decades, I'll, I'll watch, so I always enjoy kind of seeing those guys back on. I don't know if they could do that with a guy like Ken now since he's hosting, if they could put him behind the podium again. Yeah, probably not if he was hosting. That would be well. Cause, I mean, he's a he's a consulting producer, so right. I mean, boy, so I don't think he could play. Yeah. Do you do like pub trivia or trivia nights or anything like that in Omaha? Not so much anymore. I mean, when I when I was in law school, we used to we used to go around town and terrorize a couple. Of people. <laughs> yeah, but not so much anymore. Don't get doesn't get the same thrill as it used to. No, I retired from that. <laughs> some friends of mine just for the hell of it but yeah not so much anymore yeah yeah who i mean we talked to about how kind of specialized some of the skills are with jeopardy who would you say is the smartest person that you know i mean not necessarily they would do well on the game but who's the most brilliant person that you have a connection to oh i wouldn't know how to answer that question um i have no idea Because I think, you know, I, I think uh, Jeopardy isn't really a game of raw intelligence so much as it is, you know, a game to be, you know, as as James did, it's a, it's a game to be exploited. You know, it, it works along certain principles of, you know, how knowledge works. Um, you know, a lot of people have written books about that. And if you if you know how the game works, you can excel at it. Yeah. Maybe a different way to ask that question is this. If you were to go out and do a, a trivia night or a pub trivia somewhere, who who's the first person that you'd want on your team? Hmm. Out of the champions, probably, I'm in, I'm inclined to lean towards James just because he's younger hmm. and going to cover stuff that I don't know in terms of popular culture, probably. Yeah. yeah. Even in your inner circle, I didn't know if you had anybody else or somebody that you know just either in your circle of friends or acquaintances or people that you know directly? I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I'm used to doing the heavy lifting. Um, <laughs> you know, there's probably there's probably a couple of PhDs at the curling club. There always is. Hmm. Well, let's let's talk then about what your life has looked like since then, since 2005, especially, or even I mean, you were doing other things in the midst of that as well. So, uh, what what is it that you do right now? Tell us about your uh, profession. Well, right now I'm an IP attorney in Omaha. Uh, that's intellectual property. So, 90 percent of what I do is patent prosecution, uh, with the occasional trademark. For the most part, I see the future. Uh, is one way of looking at it, and I try to you know, gain patent protection for my clients uh, for their inventions. Um, and yeah, that's such, I remember remember you telling me a little bit about that last time we spoke, and that was such an interesting line of work to me just because I've never talked to anybody in that field before. So what, was there something that 
uh, gave you a desire to work in that uh, specific field or did the dominoes just kind of fall right that that was where you accidentally landed in? Well, a little of both. I mean, it always struck me as an interesting field. Um, you know, although as a, as a computer science major, I was, you know, I'm not a natural for the patent bar. It is, it is more designed for, you know, physics majors, chem majors, uh, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers. You can qualify if you're, if you're a computer science major, but it's a little bit, it's a bit of a different process. Are you able to give a, I don't know if like, you're able to give an example or give us an idea of uh, maybe a case you've worked or something that would uh, kind of shed some light on, you know, what it is, what kind of cases you represent? Well, for the most part, uh, without giving too much away, I do, you know, primarily aerospace work. Hmm. Um, occasional, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of software on the side, uh, some, some devices, some communications devices, you know, mainly in that field. And is this a field that, um, would people be surprised at how much work you do? Or, I mean, is it a field where you uh, are even needing more, more people working in the legal aspect of this field? Well, it's a high, it's a highly specialized discipline, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because I mean we're we're geeky by lawyer standards, because you have you have a lot of you know more all-purpose lawyers who will, you know, they'll handle divorces, they'll do, uh, you know, maybe they'll do med mal stuff, maybe they'll do litigation, you know, maybe they'll do family law, they'll do a little of everything, and we do a lot of a very few things. And now, as far as your outside of work, your personal life, I mean, I follow you on Twitter, and two of the main things that I see you post about are. Uh, foreign film and uh, curling. <laughs> what? So I, I want to hear a little bit about both those things. So first off, curling. What what got you interested in that particular sport? Well, I think probably my story with respect to curling is very similar to a lot of people. You know, I would I would come home late at night, um, and they would run. I think it was it was because I think it's been an Olympic sport since I want to say '98 in Nagano. Oh, was that all? In- okay. But, you know, I would come home late at night, I think either like 2002, 2006, uh, Salt Lake Turn, I forget which one it was, and they would, you know, they would run it overnight because, you know, curling matches take a while. You know, a 10-end match will usually go like a three-hour broadcast. Mm. And you don't really have a loud crowd, and you'll have mics on the players, and you'll have, you know, the constant sound of, you know, stones roaring down the ice. So it is like great ASMR television. <laughs> That's true. I would come home and put this on and just sort of either zone out to it or fall asleep to it or watch it. And, you know, eventually gain some a, sort of a basic understanding of how the game worked. And eventually Sochi rolled around in 2014, and I had pretty much like DVR'd the whole thing because I think they were running the curling on, I think, CNBC. And, you know, since it was, uh, they would have a broadcast, you know, right when you got home at the end of the day. And eventually it occurred to me, well, wait a second, I'm in Omaha. It's a large enough city. There's got to be somebody around here who actually does that. As it turned out, there was. So I just, wa- I literally wandered into an arena uh, in the summer of 2014. Uh, as it turns out, there has been a club in Omaha for, since I think the late 50s. Hmm. Uh, at that time, they were, they used, they used to have ded- a dedicated ice facility. They don't now, but we're trying to get another one. Hmm. Um, because it was, I think it was originally part of the original ex complex. Um, but at this time they were playing out of Tranquility Park in West Omaha then they moved over to Ralston where the Omaha Lancers play and after the Baxter Arena opened up back in Exarbon we moved over there and we're playing there to this day we started playing leagues that fall uh, I've been there ever since you know, obviously with a, with a bit of a break over the past year or so and how I mean would you say you've gotten to be pretty good I mean how competitive are you in curling well I mean I've only played at a couple of bond spiels uh you know, so I'm, I'm all right. I'm a decent enough shot. Um, I am maybe a bit older, a bit too old to play front end like I'd like to be able to, because, you know, team curling it's it's a it's a four player game basically. So you have you have four players who shoot two stones each, uh, alternating with the other team, and that's an end. And you have eight to ten ends, and that's a game. So you have your lead and your second who shoot first and second. And so they will shoot, and when they're not shooting, they will sweep. So anytime they're not shooting, they're sweeping the stone, you know, down down to the other end where the skip is uh, is calling the shot. And so if you're playing first or second, you're going to be doing a lot more sweeping. So that generally goes to the uh, 
the bigger you know the bigger people the younger people because you're going to be moving sideways on ice spray a lot mm-hmm. i think first bond spiel i did it was like 10 miles sideways on ice <laughs> it is it is a workout believe yeah. me huh it seems like it's it's an interesting sport that that's probably uh, the place where they are at as a sport is that they know that it's still a pretty novel idea to a lot of people, and so they, they need to be uh, uh, kind of teachers or instructing people as they go. There's that, but, but, but I think also true across the country, and especially in Omaha, we've been kind of riding a wave since the last Olympics, because in 2017, the Olympic, the Olympic team trials were in Omaha for the first time. Um, and obviously the team that came out, the, the men's team that came out of there with, with, uh, John Schuster skipping, they went to the Olympics and they won, you know, which had never, they, you know, the Americans had never won curling gold before. Mm-hmm. I think they won a bronze, I think in Turin maybe, mm-hmm. but they never won gold. And I don't think, I don't know if anybody really expected them to do so, but they did. Yeah. Do you think they have and, a good chance to repeat again this year? Anything could happen. I mean, they're ready for it. this. I thought, you know, I was, so we had the we had the Olympic trials in Omaha again again last year in November, and so you know Schuster and his crew were out there, and the team that they beat in 2017 in the in the uh, in the finals was led by a skip named Heath McCormick who's now retired. His third, his vice, his third, his vice skip was Chris Plies who's now playing with John Schuster, and the other two members of that team are now playing on a team under Corey Dropkin who's who's shooting second, who is about. You know, 10 years younger than Schuster, and they're kind of the, I think they're called the young bucks because they're, you know, they're sort of like the, you know, new guard, if you will, because Schuster is is a grizzled veteran by curling standards, by which I mean he's 39, I think. <laughs> but, I mean, he's been going to the Olympics since he was, for like the last, he's been to the last five Olympics. Wow, really? He's got as much experience as anybody does by now. Huh. Well, the other thing, again, I mentioned the foreign film. So is, is that a, I mean, I think I see a poster behind you that looks like it might be a foreign movie poster or something. Is, is that a, an art or a craft that you've always been interested in? Kind of. I mean, the, full disclosure one, the last film, the last film I saw in a theater was not foreign. It was Licorice Pizza. Okay. Um, two, this is, this is actually a foreign film poster, but it's, I think, from the 20s. And it's like the Soviet version of Brotherhood of the Wolf. I've never seen it. Okay. But Brotherhood of the Wolf is terrific. Huh. Okay. But yeah, I, no, I I grew up watching a lot of movies just naturally. I think we we're uniquely, I think we're kind of blessed in Omaha in that we have a really strong independent theater and film streams, hmm. um, and we have two Alamos uh, hmm. that opened up I think a couple of years ago. There's one out in La Vista, and there's another one in Midtown. They're both back open now. So between all four of those, um, you know, just about anything that's going to play, you can see in a theater if you want to. So is it not so much that you love foreign film, but you're just kind of a lover of film in general? For the most part. I mean, I'm not, I'm not afraid of subtitles. In uh-huh. fact, the one, one of the things I love about film streams is they're, they've gotten to the point, and I think they're sort of catering to the streaming crowd, you know, trying to get people back out into the theater. They will do screenings of movies in English, but they'll keep the subtitles up. Really? Yeah, which I think is true. Because, I mean, I, I keep the subtitles up pretty much all the time anymore. I don't care whether it's in English or, or something else. Huh, interesting. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people, you know, I like American stuff as much as I do anything. You know, I I, I suppose I was looking for stuff that would I couldn't see the ending coming. Mm. Some stuff, I mean, you, you go and you see it and you can see the ending coming a mile away because they all have the same plot. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think because they... I had the opportunity to go see, you know, stuff that I've never seen before in Russian and Korean and Japanese. And some of it's not great and some of it's actually transcendent. Yeah. Hmm. Um, anything that uh, sticks out recently within this last year that will be coming up in the, uh, you know, upcoming awards season that, that you think is going to really uh, stand out or do well, foreign or otherwise? I haven't seen all, that ne- all the Netflix stuff. I think... Um, I'm not even sure what the Oscar contenders are this year. I thought Tragedy of Macbeth was wonderful. Mm. I, like, I thought Drive My Car was wonderful, but it's you know it's three hours in Japanese, so that mm. may or may not be your cup of tea. <laughs> I, was, I thought it was terrific. Uh, I think some people might find it slow and pretentious, but I don't have a problem with that. You know, I, I sat through Sam Tonga last year, so I don't care. Like seven and a half hours in Hungarian. <laughs> is is uh, Licorice Pizza one that you see doing well at all in the awards? I thought so. I thought it was terrific. I think the ending was, I was a little underwhelmed by the ending, but I think the film itself was, 
was terrific. And of course, it's set in San Fernando Valley, mm. and it has movie people in it. So I mean, that, that'll give you a leg up for awards anyway. Yeah. And I'd never seen Lana in before. I don't know anything about that band. So I thought, I thought she was terrific. Um, I thought it was. It is very weird seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman's kid in a movie. Wow, interesting. I didn't realize that. I guess he's the male lead. He's he's basically he's fifteen, sixteen. Um, and she's, you know, in her mid twenties, which is okay. Yeah. But yeah, and, you know, every once in a while that you just, you know, you can, you can see it. I don't know. I mean, a couple of, cause a couple of years ago I'd gotten into the, I think it was Steven Soderbergh who had spent a year obsessively documenting everything he saw film TV during that year. And so I ended up doing that in 2019, hmm. um, just for fun. And I did. It had never really occurred to me you know, once I said everything out just how much stuff I had actually sat through. And then, of course, you know, the next year came and I went like 15 months without being in a theater. <laughs> well, you probably consumed a lot more TV or streaming, I would imagine, during 2020. Well, yes and no, because I, I kind of have a hard time committing to a series anymore. And I mean, there's so many series that don't need to be series. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like in the same way that a lot of meetings could be emails, a lot of series could just be movies. <laughs> That's true. Well, and then too, the, the other thing about about um, about film streams and about the Alamo and about a lot of independent distributors is they caught on to making stuff available through their streaming platforms. So, you know, a lot of the stuff you can see on you know HBO Max or, or Netflix or, but even um, even film streams, they were making stuff available by streaming that they weren't playing in the theater because you know when the theater was closed. Uh, you know, obviously you couldn't go there and a lot of people are not are still at the point where they're not necessarily comfortable about doing that mm -hmm. you know so I mean it's it's hard to immerse yourself because I mean the reason you go to a, to a theater is to immerse yourself in the film and it can be hard to do that if you are conscious of other people around you and if maybe you're not quite comfortable with that yet you're not going to have a good time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so the, you know the alternative is to stream it at home which you know, is not quite the same thing, but you can come close. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm interested now that you say that you did that year of documenting what you watch. I mean, does that include even like, say, if you just happen to catch a rerun of, you know, The Simpsons or Frasier or something? I mean, you write that down in your log or whatever, too? No, I just, I didn't go that far. I just, I just did movies. I did everything okay. I watched in its entirety. Okay. Any like, I mean, so what did you, what did you glean from that year? What were some things either that you learned about yourself or what kind of you, did you take away from that? Well, you know, I'd have to look it up. So I think I watched, I ended up, uh, I was impressed by the amount of stuff I watched that hadn't come out that year because there was a lot of stuff that, you know, a lot of older stuff that you, maybe you, you grew up watching it on cable or later on you ended up streaming it or renting a DVD or what have you that you've never seen on a big screen. Um, and so sometimes you will go see it in that kind of environment and it will be, a very different experience than maybe it originally was because I went uh, I went to an IMAX in Council Bluffs to a screening in 2001 which I'd never seen in the theater before and it was just me and like four kids in their 20s in front of me who were not used to the idea of the movie having an overture but they were down with it once they figured out what it was and so I just you know sat right up in front so it filled my entire field of vision I was so close to the screen I could see the individual pixels on the screen and you just live in that universe for you know, two hours and change. It's a fully immersive experience. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I think I have at least a memory of the, I think the Oscar that year for Best Picture was Green Book, if I'm remembering right. Oh, you're right. I never saw Green Book. <laughs> you went that whole year seeing all that stuff and you never <laughs> saw the one that won Best Picture. That is amazing. I saw, I saw Roma. I, I would have given it to Roma. I would have too. I yeah, love Roma. I was it, and I saw Roma in a theater too. And it was a, it was a, well, you know, like all Netflix movies, it's about 15 minutes too long, hmm. you know, and maybe you don't need to hold every shot for two minutes, <laughs> but, but, you know, it was clearly made with passion, and it was well made, and it looked great, and it was interesting, it was, you know, and it was emotionally, you know, it was emotionally gripping, I mean, it had everything. As, as we're talking about other media, this is something I was kind of curious about, too. Um, when I first emailed you about uh, doing a podcast, you mentioned that you hadn't really done one yourself. You'd just been a consumer of them. What What are some podcasts that you listen to, or what do you like to, to do while you're driving? Well, let's see. I think Monday is Gerson and Leach. That's a film podcast okay. with uh, Tim Gerson and, and Will Leach, who I think both used to 
he used to write for Deadspin. Will, yeah, I know Will a little bit. When Deadspin was a thing. And it's it's probably the best movie podcast I'm aware of. The only one I follow regularly. Hmm. Uh, there's a Mad Men podcast that drops on Thursday. <laughs> there is uh, Karina Longworth's... Um, What's it called? Uh, you must remember this drops on Tuesday. Okay. Uh, that's sort of that's basically the, the podcast version of the the Trill Pursuit Silver Screen Edition. Oh. And that's for. What's it called again? Oh, you must remember this. You must remember. Okay. Hmm. I think they just finished. They just finished a season on uh, Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin and the Rat Pack. Okay. I don't know if I had any a, a whole lot more uh, questions for you, Eric. Um, I'll, I'll wrap it up. I kind of like to, when I talk to people, give a little bit of a, a, a chance to at least tell them, you know, my respect for them with the certain things that they do. And so I've always uh, really been uh, impressed with what you've done. And, uh, I mean, having somebody from Sioux City, I think, that excelled so well on Jeopardy was really uh, uh, special for a lot of people back when it first aired. And I think, unfortunately, people kind of forget about it now that it's been a lot of years since it first aired. But... Uh, when it came back on during the pandemic and they aired the Million Dollar Masters again, I think that was really cool for a lot of people to see. And so even me, I mean, I, I kind of remembered you from your later appearances on the show, um, just based on, you know, my age and, you know, when I was watching the show. But um, I really respect a lot of your game and what uh, what you did on the show. And uh, it's really been fun to uh, get a chance to follow you over the years and uh, see see kind of what you do and hear some of your story. Yeah, thank you. That, yeah, it was, it was a profoundly weird experience watching that. Um it did make me kind of want to do it again, but I, I don't know where I'd start to be able to do it as well as I'd like to. So that was Eric. Um, he and I could have really talked all night about different things. Uh, we have a lot of overlapping interests when it comes to, to film and, and sports and just talking about Jeopardy stuff. Um, I'm, I'm such a big Jeopardy fanboy that I would love to pick his brain about um, all sorts of different things when it comes to different hosts or different champions. And so um, I always really enjoy chatting with him. And so I know that maybe that's not terribly interesting to your average listener. But uh, for those of you out there who who really are big Jeopardy fans and who have seen um, some of these hosts go through or some of these champions that we were talking about, I think you might find it interesting, hopefully. Um, so as, as always, um, if you have any recommendations for somebody that might be a good fit for appearing on this podcast. I'd love to uh, reach out to them. Um, I, I'm trying to cover a lot of different areas and not have, have any uh, specific segment of the population be the only people I talk to. So if you have any suggestions, I'm always willing to, uh, to hear them. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you hopefully before too long.